Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this episode is with Rick Pender, who is an award-winning theater critic, and he's actually based out of Cincinnati, but this guy is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to everything Stephen Sondheim, and he has now published a book that is now a literal encyclopedia about Stephen Sondheim. It's a 600-plus page book that he pretty much wrote every word of that is about Stephen, his career, the songs, the shows, the people that were involved in his orbit. It is just an incredible book by an incredible man. And even in our limited conversation, in the little time we had for this episode, he painted Sondheim in such a different light in my mind. I have this idea, as I'm sure many people do, about who Stephen Sondheim is. And just asking Rick about how Sondheim grew up and what his dynamic was with his teachers and why he teaches other people the way he does and even got into modern-day Sondheim, as many people call Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? This conversation went to so many places that I did not expect. Rick, thank you for an amazing conversation. So incredible. Make sure to visit me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Visit me on the web at thetheaterpodcast.com. Please leave a rating, leave a review, follow along, hit that follow button, that subscribe button, wherever you are listening. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Rick Pender. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Here you go. One, two, three. My guest today has been an award-winning theater critic since 1986, and this former editor of the Sondheim Review has compiled a trove of detailed entries about nearly every subject Sondheim touched, bringing to life not only the man's well-known collaborators and projects, but also many names you may have glimpsed in programs or on cast albums, as well as gathering definitive descriptions of lesser-known works and influences that you'd have to search dozens and dozens of books to, to uncover. So now here to discuss his book, The Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia, available now. Rick Pender, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm glad to be here. I am, I am just floored by the amount of information that you have culled into one book. Uh, and 
one originally when when this came across my desk, I was like, oh, you know, this guy wrote in a biography of Sondheim, but it's not. It's not a biography at all. It's a true encyclopedia. You know, it's it starts with gosh, it starts with A for George Abbott, first director of to stage a show for which Sondheim wrote both book and lyrics. It ends with Y for You Could Drive a Person Crazy, which is the final song he wrote for company. Why did you decide on an encyclopedia format and not just write an autobiography? Well, uh, that's because someone else asked me to do it. I guess is the simple answer. <laughs> I was a, because of my work on the magazine uh, and a variety of other things related to Sondheim. Uh, I was approached by the publisher about doing this. They they had approached one other person previously, a pretty well known authority in the musical theater world, a man named Mark Horowitz, who is at the Library of Congress. And Mark uh, is busy working on cataloging and organizing Oscar Hammerstein's correspondence. And he said, I don't really have time to do this. And Mark, Mark and I have had a lot of uh, uh, interactions. He wrote for the magazine frequently, and uh, it was a fabulous resource to me. So he suggested they call me and uh, when they asked me initially, I thought they were asking me to coordinate the assembly of a lot of material about science. I mean, that's sort of what a what an encyclopedia is. Usually yeah. it has a lot of contributors. Well, no, no, they really only had me in mind. And they sent me a contract which said that they expected 300,000 words from me. 300,000. That's a lot of wow. words. That's like three or four novels. <laughs> Right, which I've never I've never written a novel, so that, that all, I thought, wow, I picked myself up off the floor and said, well, I'll give it a try, and uh, that that's pretty much how I generated it. Took uh, took about eighteen months altogether to put it all put it all down, and uh, but I had a lot to draw upon from the episodes of the magazine that I had edited for twelve years, and the magazine had actually been around for twenty two years, so I had you know four times 22 issues that I could rely upon. There are a lot of books about Sondheim, a very good biography, in fact. So, you know, I didn't really need to write a biography, although that biography was published in 98. And, well, here he is 23 years later still doing stuff. So that probably needs to be updated. And I do have a biographical entry in this that uh, is pretty thorough and not nearly as comprehensive as Meryl Seacrest's biography of Sondheim, but it touches on all the major points. So there, that's there, but there are 131 entries altogether in there. And I'm the author of most of them, except I have to give due credit again to Mark Horowitz. He had written uh, 10 essays for the magazine called Biography of a Song, in which he dug way deep into some very well-known Sondheim numbers. And those uh, pieces were extraordinarily long for a magazine and really more than you'd want for an encyclopedia entry. But with Mark's permission, I was able to uh, cut them down. They're now 1,500 to 2,000 words, which is still a lot. But Mark's original pieces were anywhere from five to 7,000 words. It would have gotten me to 300,000 faster if I'd used the whole thing. But uh, I didn't think that people would maybe have the patience to read that much. Well, this is this is 636 pages. 
uh, most of which you, you just said you wrote yourself, which yeah. I think is a feat, a feat unto itself for getting this done in 18 months, right? Yeah, right. And I want to back up in your life because uh, I, I'm going to read the first paragraph of the book's intro. It says, or you write, when I set out to write this introduction, I thought I might mention my early attraction to the lyrics of West Side Story, the first LP soundtrack I purchased as a teenager. I could have described seeing the motion pictures of Gypsy or Forum, but it wasn't until I saw stage productions of Company and Follies that I really began to take notice of Stephen Sondheim. I was swept away by a little night music and Sweeney Todd, charmed by Into the Woods, and by the early 1990s, I was wholeheartedly enthusiastic about anything he created. So let's step back to being a teenager. What okay. were you? What kind of teenager were you before you ran across West Side Story? And then what was it about West Side Story that just clicked for you? Well, I guess I would say I was kind of a theater geek. I mean, I, I was on stage in high school, not, not because I was a, a talented performer. I always say it's because I was a boy who was willing to go on stage. But, <laughs> but, but I, I did do some of that. And I loved theater. I had a wonderful uh, the English teacher who you know, did all the theater productions. And she inspired, inspired me to have a love of theater in general. I remember seeing the movie of West Side Story and being deeply moved by it and decided that uh, it was time for me to start buying an LP or two. And that, honestly, was the first LP I bought was the soundtrack to West Side Story. And I listened to that, I think obsessively would be the right word. And what I was particularly drawn to, I mean, Leonard Bernstein's score is, of course, fabulous music, but it was the words to some of these songs that something's coming. Is I, I, To me, it was just, it was it was this amazing uh, anticipation that, Something, some amazing thing was about to happen, and I sort of that I don't know I, I resonated with that. And then, of course, I laughed out loud to the lyrics to something like "G Officer Krupke," and so I was caught up in all that. But I didn't know who Stephen Sondheim was at that point, as I as as you have uh, uh, read there. I did see the movie of Gypsy, which I thought was pretty good and had had great lyrics in it. And Forum, the movie was. Uh, kind of tedious, but uh, you know, it was it was there. There was some great music in it, but as uh, it was really in the seventies when Sondheim's most, uh, I guess I'll say, most respected shows were produced through that decade that I really began to uh, to capture him. I will tell you though, the thing that happened in the late eighties that really kind of pushed me over the brink was that I'd had some surgery and I knew I was going to be laid up for a while. I went to the library and got an uh, armful of, of CDs, including one called A Collector's Sondheim. It was three discs with, you know, so about three hours of music. Uh, it, it had been released in 1985, and it had on it music that, uh, although now I was beginning to put together that this guy had done all these different things, but there was stuff on there that I'd never heard of before. There was a this thing called Evening Primrose, which had some really sweet music in it. Uh, so there, there was some instrumental music that he'd written for, for a movie called Stavisky. And it was, it was just sort of fascinating to see the length and breadth of his work. And I listened to that the whole, I was laid up for about a month with the surgery. And uh, so I listened to that over and over again. And uh, that was when I really began to think, this guy is an amazing 
lyric writer. I mean, his music, of course, is also, you know, sort of uh, unbelievable. But the, the, for me, it was really the, the words. And I guess the other thing I should add is I, after I was an English major in college, I uh, went on and got an MA and a PhD in English literature. So words are the things that particularly draw me uh, into much of this. Now, Sondheim is amazing to work with because, you know, he composes the music and writes the lyrics. And so they are especially integrated in, in meaningful ways with one another. Uh, but, it, but it was the words that first drew me in. That's, that's interesting. I, I was going to ask what you went to school for, because personally, when I listen to music, I'm, I'm immediately attracted to the beat and to the melody. And the instrumental side of it, and then if I like that, I go back and I start dissecting the lyrics. I it's like I'm listening to the lyrics and I don't even hear them yeah. though because I'm I'm picturing how my mind works as mm -hmm. I picture all the instruments individually as they're playing this music, and then the lyrics are kind of secondary. Yeah. So it's it's really cool to me that especially as a teenager, you you start getting drawn into these these lyrics and the things that you like over the years end up all being written by the same person. That's right. Without, without That's right. you realizing it at the yeah. time. I guess the other thing I would say is that by virtue of having all that education in literature, the whole concept of storytelling is very important to me. And so when I see a show, you know, I want to know what it's about and who the characters are and what they're doing. And that sometimes very much writes music for, according to that concept, because he he doesn't like sit down and write a bunch of songs and then they put them together and make a show. He really goes at it the other way. He works with a book writer. The story is put together. Then they begin to identify places where music could be used to enlighten us about a character or motivate some action or set a scene or whatever. But the but he writes the music to fit that and to fit the character and to expand on the character. So his music is very highly integrated into the storytelling. And I think that's part of what captured me. Why why Sondheim specifically though, do you think? Because there there's I guess coming up in that in those particular decades, there was also Weber and there was Macintosh and and so I guess those were the three leading leading the races there. But what was it about Sondheim? And when and looking back though at your love of theater and your love of the arts, do you do you pull out what do you pull out about I guess him specifically that made you want to start learning and writing all about him and not other people? Or maybe, I mean, do you have like secondary we'll call these we'll call these healthy obsessions. Do you have <laughs> secondary <laughs> healthy obsessions? Nothing that approaches Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with musical theater in general, of course, uh, but also with straight theater. I'm mean, a theater critic. I write about. I mean, I write a lot about Shakespeare, and I actually sort of think of Sondheim as a latter day Shakespeare. You know, he when you think about. I mean, you know, Shakespeare wrote comedies and tragedies and histories, and you look at Sondheim's body of work. He didn't write quite as many as Shakespeare, but he's written a lot more than most people who who compose and create musical theater. And there are 18 major shows that, that I chronicle in the, in the encyclopedia. So there's some of that. I think also, though, he is truly, a, he's truly an intellectual. 
I mean, you listen to the words and the the rhymes and the just the clever way lyrics are put together. Uh, I, I mean, it's just sort of breathtaking sometimes. But it's also if you know you look at those shows. Let's just use the shows that happened during the '70s. So we've got Company, we've got Follies, we've got Night Music, we have Pacific Overtures, and then we have Merrily We Roll Along. Those shows. I mean, if you didn't know, if you just heard, listened to the cast recordings of those, you would not stop and say, "Oh, these are all by the same guy," as opposed to, you know, uh, I mean, a composer like like Jerry Herman. His shows, they're wonderful shows, but the music all begins to, you know, it sort of comes from the same kind of mind. Even even Andrew Lloyd Webber, a lot of his stuff has that sort of melodic overflow uh, that that is very indicative of his of his writing. With and Sondheim, no plot. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that too. <laughs> uh, but with, with Sondheim, for one thing, the story is what's driving all of it, and and but secondly. Each show has music that is appropriate to what the story is. So we have a very sort of pop contemporary sound to company. We get to Follies, and we're, we're back in the 20s and 30s, you know, back with, you know, sort of Broadway Follies, Ziegfeld Follies, and that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of the music he wrote for that was very consciously pastiche, recreating the kind of songs by the composers who were dominant during that era. You go from that to a little night music, and he's writing waltzes, and it's like Viennese operetta. You know, again, totally different. And then we, we do 180, and it's Pacific Overtures, and it sounds like it's by an Asian composer. It has all these Asian tonalities and language that feels very spare, like would come out of a Japanese creator. And then you get to Sweeney Todd, and you know it just sort of blows you away altogether. So, you know... To me, it was in part being drawn to someone whose mind would create all of those different kinds of things successfully. And uh, I, I guess the other thing that I would point out is that um, I, I mentioned that he is an intellectual. He always has, a, to me, a sort of a reserved irony to a lot of the things he creates. And it's not to say that it's cold and without emotion. In fact, there's a lot of emotion as an undercurrent to it. I mean, you look at a show like, like Company, when you get down to being alive, that's about as passionate a song as you could hope to hear. And uh, it grows out of the sorry, grateful, and you know all of those other kinds of songs in the show that kind of lay a foundation for Robert then finally realizing that he does need to have a relationship in his life. So that, to me, says that you know the charges against Sondheim that he's cold and unemotional uh, people have missed the point they really are not paying close attention i don't i don't think yeah i agree i agree that i think they missed the point i don't think he's cold and unemotional i think like he's one of those sort of stereotypical artists that is kind of shy publicly and expresses themselves through their through their music through their art yeah so if they're going to meet somebody in person he might come across as a little bit mean or a little bit shy and especially now that everybody wants something from him when they meet him of course he's going to be a little bit yeah. reserved so you know what i would i would add to that point however is that he's very quick to say he's writing these songs for characters this is not to reveal something about himself you know a lot of people look at at george surratt and sunday in the park with george and say oh that's sondheim's 
you know, philosophy of creation and being absorbed by your art and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, of course, because Sondheim is a creative artist, he probably had some simpatico with some of that sort of thing, but he's not writing about himself. And, you know, I th- it's wrong to extrapolate too far from, from that sort of thing. Fair point. And well, you actually got a lot of input from the, from him on the to write this encyclopedia, right? Like, how did that relationship develop? Well, that, that came about largely because of the magazine. Uh, so from 2004 to 2016, I was putting out a magazine every quarter. And uh, sometimes I interviewed him for art when he published the lyric study volumes. Uh, we, we had long phone conversations came to Cincinnati several times because John Doyle came here and st- staged that original revival production of Company with Raul Esparza in it. Um, mm-hmm. Sondheim came to watch the tech rehearsals for that, and he sat down with me in a radio studio with our local NPR affiliate that I did some interviewing for, and uh, we had like an hour-long conversation there. So we had a, some foundation for relationship there. With the magazine, uh, you know, I, he would get the magazine, he would read it from cover to cover, and then he would let me know what we got right and what we got wrong. And, uh, you know, he wasn't hesitant to say, well, you totally missed the point on this, or why did you let that writer say that? But it was wonderful to have that kind of feedback, and then I would typically try to reflect that back in a, in a subsequent issue. It's Okay, okay, so there, there's something that... Uh, I guess we'll talk about Sweeney Todd a little bit. Um, in, in to that point, because he's telling you what you got right and wrong, but I mean, everything's open to interpretation. Of course, the artist, does the artist, in your opinion, have the final say on what gets created, right? Because where I'm going with this is Sweeney Todd, Sondheim says is about obsession and revenge, but how Prince thought it was about something altogether different you know, right. so the director, the director is thinking it's all about something different, but the person who wrote it thinks is telling you about this, and the director doesn't want to take it that way. I mean, so where, who has the final say there? Who's right? Well, apparently the director, since Hal Prince <laughs> staged the production that was more a condemnation of the grinding impact of uh, the Industrial Revolution on society, which cranked out somebody like Sweeney Todd, uh, and and that was quite successful, and I don't think that. Sondheim begrudges it. It's just that's not the approach that he would have taken. And uh, there have been subsequent productions, the John Doyle's production of Sweeney Todd, you know, with Michael Servitus and Patty Lapone in it. That was certain. That was a much more intimate, uh, almost inside. Well, it was inside the head of one of the characters, really. You know, in a in an insane asylum. Uh, you have the the production that. Uh, uh, was done more recently in London in the pie and mash shop where, you know, people were sitting at like picnic tables and the actors were among them. So what Sondheim liked about Sweeney Todd, you know, he saw a, a theatrical, non-musical production of it by Christopher Bond, which is what drew him into saying, and he approached the guy and said, I'd like to take this and turn it into a musical. I think Bond thought, well, okay, good luck. But, you know, so Sondheim did that, and uh, what he liked about it was that it was scary. You know, he likes evoking powerful emotions, and that was what he, he just he wanted to create a show that would scare the bejesus out of people. And that's what he felt he created and what some of these latter productions have accomplished. But I don't think he would say that, that 
you know, he didn't like what Hal Prince did with the original. I mean, my God, they won the Tony Award and made a lot of money on it. So, you know, it clearly it worked for a lot of people. It's interesting to me, I, I guess, it speaks to his character that, I mean, we don't know how much fighting or if any fighting happened behind the scenes between yeah. him and Hal. But when he, you know, he writes the score and writes the show and then turns it over to the director and the director's like, I'm going to do something completely different with it. I would suspect that a lot of composers would probably kind of put their foot down and say like, no, this is not why I wrote this. This is not what this is about. But I guess, you know, it speaks to his character a little bit that yeah. he trusts in the vision of the director. I, I think a part of what why Sondheim works in musical theater is that he loves the collaborative process of working with other people. I mean, you look at several of his other shows, look at Company. That started off as a series of little one acts that George Firth wrote. And Firth came to Sondheim and said, what do you think I might do with this? And Sondheim kind of threw his hands up and said, I don't know. He said, let's ask Hal Prince, because he's pretty creative about this stuff. And Prince said, <laughs> let's make a musical out of it. And I think they were both, I think that, that Firth and Sondheim were both kind of like, what? How, do we, how are we going to do that? And uh, it was Hal Prince who uh, pushed everybody into doing Pacific Overtures. John Weidman, who did write the book for it, had written a play about the opening of Japan in the 19th century. But uh, it was a play. It was a very straight-ahead kind of historical drama. And suddenly Prince said, let's make a musical out of it. Sondheim said, I don't know anything about Asian music. But he dragged people into it. So I think there was a strong degree of trust between Sondheim and Prince and Sondheim knew that if, you know, if they worked together on it, it was going to be a good thing. That all sort of fell apart when they were working on, on Merrily We Roll Along. And it was in part because Prince never got his concept pulled together on that. And what went up on stage was a mess. And, mm -hmm. uh, and yet everybody recognized the, the great score and the lyrics for it. And that, the, the fact that they made a cast recording after it closed almost immediately really preserved that show in ways that enabled it to have a future. And the fact that Sondheim and Firth went back to it with Lapine directing and you know changed it in some ways that makes it work better. Some people still think it's not quite right, but but it works a lot better than it did originally. And and you don't have uh, teenagers playing older people. <laughs> <laughs> True. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's some obvious parallels that I think a lot of people would draw between between Sondheim and and Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course. When Hamilton made the big splash that it did at first, people were like, you got to go see, you got to go see Hamilton, you got to go see Hamilton, it's the show about it, blah, 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 right? On paper, a show about the Founding Fathers that has rap and R&B is not something that would appeal to most people, but look at what happened, right? And again, parallels to Sondheim, there aren't a lot of songs you can take out of Hamilton that you can hum. It, it, it's, but it's all about the storytelling. And you said something earlier about Sondheim too that I think Lynn does very well is the wordplay and the rhyming and mixing up the rhyming scheme mid-song and all of these things. It's phenomenal. So I would love your your cone of safety. Anything you say here will not be judged. Uh, what do you think about people calling Lynn the modern day Sondheim? Yeah. Uh, but but I think that the talent is certainly there. I, let me tell you, I, 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 this is exemplary of Sondheim, but it involves Miranda, so let me tell you a little bit here. Um, when, uh, when Miranda was in college, I believe he was in a production of uh, Merrily We Roll Along. He also he played Charlie in the, uh, the Sondheim celebration at the Kennedy Center back in 2002. So you know, he'd already begun to sort of make his mark, and, and, and Sondheim got to know him, especially in, in D.C. Sondheim was around as they were putting those productions together. There uh, were other ways in which they crossed paths, one of which I, I'm pleased to say I was actually involved in. Um, shortly after I got uh, named as the, the managing editor of the magazine, uh, I got a call one day from a man in New York City who's asking me to come and moderate a conversation on stage with Stephen Sondheim. Now, I, I mean, I admired the man, but I hadn't really had any close personal relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And somehow they had, uh, I, there was some raffle at a, an event, and this guy had won it and got Sondheim to agree to come to this event. And he wanted him to come and make a speech. Sondheim doesn't like to make speeches, but he will sit on stage and have a conversation. And he suggested to the guy who was putting the event on, call up Rick Tender and say, you know, why don't you come to New York and uh, and do this interview? So I did. Now, I tried to get Steve to say, okay, here's some questions. You know, th- we'll talk about this. He said, I don't, I don't want to know what you're going to ask me. He said, I'd rather just respond off the cuff. But he said, <laughs> it would be good to have some music, uh, you know, in between. We can talk about songs and that sort of thing. So I end up in New York, and we're in a supper club in the theater district, and I meet Sondheim at a cocktail hour a little bit before that, and then we, are, uh, we go and check things out on stage, and I meet this guy named uh, Raul Esparza, who's going to uh, be singing these songs. Now, he wasn't all that well-known yet, but he was, uh, 
in fact, at that moment, auditioning to play Bobby in company uh, in <laughs> Cincinnati and then come back to Broadway with it. So, you know, there was there was all of that. So he he sort of played a part in this. And it was clear to me that Sondheim was loved to be mentoring people. So move on a little bit further. Um, Arthur Lawrence is doing a at the age of 94 or something like that, is doing another production of West Side Story. And Sondheim suggests, and some others suggested, that maybe they should have the sharks sing in Spanish. I mean, they're, you know, they're all, they're Puerto Rican or Mm -hmm. whatever. Why not? Well, Sondheim said, you know, I can't write lyrics in Spanish, but I know this young guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And so he wrote, he translated all the shark songs Miranda did into Spanish. No while kidding. they were, while they were, yeah, and and it, uh, they they used them on Broadway for about six months, and then they decided that audiences were having a hard time following what was going on. I don't know if they were doing it with supertitles or not. I think probably not. And then they went, they reverted back to using the English. But just the fact that Miranda could put the lyrics into Spanish is kind of astonishing. There's been actually it's a little footnote, but there's been a ton of international productions, Sondheim shows translated into other languages. I, I, I don't speak other languages to any great extent, so I've not really seen or paid a lot of attention to them, but they seem to do pretty well. But at any rate, while they were working on that production, Sondheim said, So, you know, what are you what are you doing next? In the Heights had already been a been a hit on Broadway. And uh, Miranda said to him, I'm working on a musical about Alexander Hamilton. And Sondheim apparently just threw his head back and laughed and said, that is exactly what you should be doing. The sort of thing that (laughs) nobody would expect from you after what you've done already. Which is, I mean, think about that. Isn't that exactly what Sondheim has done throughout his career? Every show has been like, where did that come from? That's nothing like anything else. So, you know, Sondheim has mentored so many people who are Broadway creators. I mean, I, it's been interesting to me. We had a series of features in the magazine for a while called Following Sondheim. And I got people like Aaron's and Flaherty. I mean, all, all sorts of well-known people who so admire Sondheim, who Sondheim gave advice to when they were coming up in their careers. He, he, he is a mentor and a teacher to, to many, many people, including Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah, I, I've always, I've never met the man in person. I've always gotten the feeling that he is just overall very helpful and he wants to see the industry as a whole succeed and thrive. And, you know, obviously you, you, these stories you're telling just further reinforce all of that. that, that you know, it's, to- it's also really fascinating to watch him do like master classes with singers with his songs. They're easy to find on YouTube and watch him as he studies a singer, and then he will stop them and say, all right, now, now think about this a little bit more and change this emphasis a little bit. Okay, now try it again. It's not He's not being critical or mean or anything like that. He's being very encouraging. And as they get it better and better, big smiles on his face, like, you know, so he loves to be a teacher. You know, he's the first person who a dedicated teaching position, a dedicated professorship, at Oxford University was made in in his name. And he was appointed to it when it was started back in the 90s, I believe it was. And he did some, it wasn't like he taught a course, you know, three days a week, 
but he came in a couple times and lectured to students there. Well, speaking of mentorship, actually, that you talk about this in the in your encyclopedia that Sondheim himself was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein. Of course, wrote the lyrics for South Pacific and Sound of Music and all these other Golden Age musicals. Right. So, do you do you know much about the the nature of that relationship? I mean, I think like what was I watching? I was watching uh, Netflix last night. Um, a show and there was a line it was like monsters make monsters right so if you're mean then you're other people right so i i feel like that i suspect hammerstein was probably a pretty good mentor too to then mentor sondheim who is mentoring all these other people and it's kind of paying it forward right yes so here's the story sondheim's parents divorced when he was about 12 years old and his mom because it was a very bitter divorce and wanted to get she wanted to get away from from his father, and she moved out to Bucks County, to Doylestown, Pennsylvania. It was a place where people could live and commute into the city, but uh, it was kind of remote, very, very uh, rural, I guess I would say. And lo and behold, who owns a farm that's within walking distance? Oscar Hammerstein. He, uh, Oscar, Aki, as the family called him, and as Steve <laughs> referred to him when he was a kid, um, had, a son, <laughs> had, a, had a son named James or Jimmy, and he and Sondheim were about the same age, and they went to school together, uh, a school nearby there in Doylestown. And uh, so Sondheim ended up going over to the Hammerstein farm to kind of hang out. There were always a lot of creative people around there. Richard Rogers' daughter, Mary, who's about the same age, was there. So they they were all sort of mixed up and friendly with one another. But Sondheim, was really lacking a father figure. I mean, he still saw his father, but his father did not have a lot of influence on his creativity. And he just gravitated to to Oscar. And he, to this day, he, he has said things like, if Oscar Hammerstein had been a geologist, I would probably be a geologist. <laughs> so I guess we should all be grateful that he was involved in music theater. <laughs> but, but, uh, but he was uh, such a great influence. So, in, in high school, Sondheim wrote a couple of school shows. They were more just like sort of comedy scenes rooted in school events and that sort of thing, which he and his classmates apparently thought were quite hilarious. And one day he took it to Oscar to show him, thinking Oscar would look at this and his eyes would widen and he would say, this is amazing. We should put this show on Broadway. And that's not what happened. Oscar read it and he said, it's one of the worst things I've ever read. And, and as, as little Stevie started, you know, tearing up a little bit, he said, but, but it's not without promise. There's some good stuff in here. And if you'd like to learn more, I'd be happy to help you figure this out. And if you want to, if you want to try to write musicals, here we go. And he set four lessons for him, different kinds of projects, take a play and try to, an existing play and you know, mu- musicalize it, take a, uh, take a song by, you know, anyway, it was four different exercises. And over the, the next year or two that he had in high school and then his time at uh, Williams College, he did all four of these. And none of them are shows that exist today. Some of the few songs are still around from them. But uh, they, uh, he really learned from those things. And when Oscar Hammerstein was dying of cancer, uh, Sondheim was a young man, went, still went to see him, still really worshipped him. And uh, he uh, 
he asked uh, Oscar to autograph a photo so that he would have a picture of him. And Oscar had to think about it for a while. And when he uh, gave it to Steve, Steve got home and looked at it and it said, to my teacher. So, so, you know, he felt that he had learned things from, from Steve as much as Steve had from him. So it it was a tremendous relationship and that you, you are absolutely right. That had to have had some impact on him, his admiration of teachers you know that the uh, the Kennedy Center in Washington has an annual Sondheim Award, and it is a, an award for school teachers who you know teach direct kids in plays and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, it's a, it's a wonderful tribute to Sondheim that, that exists that way. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there, gosh, there's there's so much about this that. Or about him and about his legacy that I that I wasn't aware of, and like digging into the encyclopedia and just even having this brief conversation with you, I I, I am walking away seeing him as a completely different type of person. And everybody has a background, everybody has a story, and just knowing, I, I'm so glad you brought up the story about him and Oscar Hammerstein because, like, knowing that about him and. Uh, I, I don't know where I'm. I'm not going anywhere with this, but it just it's touching. It's very it's a very touching story. I can, I, can, so, I can see it. <laughs> uh, so there are three standard closing questions that I ask everybody to wrap up the episodes. And the first one, very simply, is what motivates you? What motivates me? Um, I guess I would answer that expansively. My writing about theater in general is to inspire people to go to the theater, whether it be drama or musical theater or whatever. But I especially like to inspire people to dip their toes into the, the oceans of Sondheim and find, you know, how much there is there. So it is sharing those kinds of things and helping people to appreciate them even more. And that's part of what I hope the encyclopedia accomplishes. Awesome. Okay, so the second question is, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? I have traveled down so many paths in my career. I thought I was going to be a high school English teacher. And so I did, I, I, I've taught almost everywhere. I mean, I did a little bit of high school teaching. I, uh, when I was getting my graduate degrees, I had, I taught freshman English and I had a teaching fellowship. I have worked at places where I've edited other people's writing. I was for about 10 years. I was the executive vice president of a, uh, of a public relations agency, and I trained all of our. I gave gave applicants writing tests, and uh, you know, scared scared the bejesus out of most of them with my markups on things they had written. Um, so, I guess that you know that that path is one that I think is a is a valuable one. And uh, looking back, I didn't really know that's what what I was doing. I but I would say to myself. Write and read as much as you can. Now I've done a lot of that. My my path has been rather circuitous because my my work uh, my my doctoral dissertation was uh, in medieval literature, a long way from musical theater or anything like that. But it was about it was about storytelling. I wrote my dissertation about Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort Arthur, the King Arthur legends. I mean, what greater storytelling is there out there than than that sort of thing? So you know that. That played a part in that. But then I worked much of my career in public relations and marketing and used my writing skills for that. 
people who are able to write can always refine their skills. It is magic to people who struggle with writing. But I would say that if you are, if you move in the direction of writing, just read as much as you possibly can. I mean, I, I voraciously read newspapers and magazines. You know, I, I get the New Yorker and try not to let it stack up too much next to my bedside table <laughs> because it gets ahead of me sometimes. But I love to, to read the short stories, the, the, the profiles, all the kinds of things in there. And uh, I'm a little bit like, this, this, this relates. One of the things Sondheim says is that he loves to read about how things are done. You know, he said, I'm, if somebody describes to me how uh, tin cans are manufactured, I'm interested in that. I like to understand those processes. And I, I, I feel like I am a little bit of a kindred spirit in that way. I love to read things that are about stuff that I don't know anything about. So I think that those things are likely to expand your horizons. And that's a way for someone to get to be a, a better and more comprehensive writer. Okay, I'll tell you one more thing here. That is that at the same time that I was writing this book, I was writing another book that's called Oldest Cincinnati. It's a, like a, a, a list of old things here in town, a, a church, a school, uh, a theater, all of those kinds of things that people can go around and check out. So again, I, I'm interested in lots of different things. Oh, I love that. That was that was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Um, okay, so then the final question. This is the hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Good Lord, what a question. I guess that I would say Sunday in the Park with George. Hmm. All right, all right. Because, because it is about the creative process and people who struggle with it, um, I think the music in it is beautiful. It's not my favorite Sondheim show, but it is the show that makes me think more about things. And if I'm going to listen to it over and over and over, that's probably the one I would listen to. Now, if I were you, who resonates with the music, I'd probably say a little night music because I love the waltz melodies in that. You know, oh, this is, that. your, your question that is, in college. Your, your, your question is akin to the question that I do often get asked is, which is your favorite Sondheim show? And mm -hmm. I'd say, all right, you have to let me qualify that by what day of the week is it and what's the one I've seen most recently? <laughs> so, because that, every one of them has things that are worth talking about or writing about. And, uh, you know, it sort of depends on what, what you what you like it's also sort of like asking you know someone with a bunch of kids you know who's your favorite child you know you you, you love them all and there's reasons for depends you know, on who pissed you off the most there you go. <laughs> absolutely you got it um yeah it, i i wanted you to know though that when i asked that question and i've asked that 130 something times now on this podcast uh by far the overwhelming answer has been sweeney todd well i can understand that i mean it's it is a gorgeous show and it has so much music in it and the humor is so dark that uh i think that it it appeals to the people who are the most archetypal sondheim fans you know it's sort of it's a total package i can see yeah. that yeah 
You can find more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. On facebook.com slash official theater podcast, please leave a rating and a review. Hit that follow button to make sure you don't miss an episode. This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hoodlum Productions. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Rick Pender, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.